From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. You know, each week we review dozens and dozens of articles, and we we do a journal scan uh, typically on about 12 or so that we think are relevant to practice. And then I pick typically uh, two or three that I think are particularly uh, useful to think about as they relate to your practice, and we pick those for the podcast. And today we're going to talk about three articles that were published in uh, three different journals this week, one on the association of race and ethnicity with oral anticoagulant use in patients with AFib, another looking at uh, the evolution of catheter ablation, studying the National Registry in Sweden, and then lastly, uh, an article that came out looking at the safety of beta blockers in pregnancy and the risk for congenital malformations in the developing fetus. So let's get started. The first article was published this week in JAMA Cardiology, and it's a study uh, that used the outcomes registry for better informed treatment of AFib. It's a prospective U.S.-based registry of outpatients who had non-transient AFib who were uh, adults, and they were followed from 2013 to 2016. And this data was particularly relevant looking at the most recent year, February 2017 to February 2018. The study looked at uh, self-reported race, ethnicity, categorized as either being white, black, or Hispanic. And the primary outcome of the study was whether any anticoagulant was being used for AFib, also whether the direct oral anticoagulants were being used. And secondary outcomes of interest included the quality of anticoagulation received and discontinuation of the medication at a year. And they did multivariable logistic regression to look at several factors that might be interplaying here. So there were roughly 12,000 patients in this particular analysis. About 90% of them were white, and the other 10% were divided relatively equally between blacks and Hispanics. After adjusting for clinical features, it was very interesting. Black individuals were less likely to receive any oral anticoagulant than whites, the hazard ratio being 0.75. They were also less likely to receive a DOAC, and there the hazard ratio was even more dramatic, 0.63. Once they controlled for socioeconomics, the use of oral anticoagulants was no longer different in blacks, but the use of DOACs was, it remained about 25% less commonly prescribed. There was no difference in this study between Hispanics and white patients. They also looked at median time and therapeutic range, and that was lower in black individuals and Hispanics, less than 60% of the time, and for the white individuals, it was in the high 60s. Black and Hispanic individuals in this particular analysis were also less likely to get appropriate dosing. They were more frequently inappropriately dosed than white patients. The persistence at one year was relatively similar. So the authors concluded that after they controlled for clinical and socioeconomic factors, that black individuals were less likely than whites to receive direct oral anticoagulants for AFib. You know, this is a very interesting paper, and I think it continues to call to mind disparities in our care across our nation. Part of this relates to insurance. Part of it relates to access and other things. Clearly, uh, Compliance or persistence at one year requires strong education and interaction with a patient's physician. 
If there's any actionable knowledge from this particular paper, I think it's we need to educate, educate, educate to make sure that our patients stay on their anticoagulants. And we need to fight for coverage. If there's a problem uh, getting a patient uh, the DOAC, we need to fight through their insurer and other vehicles to get them coverage. Okay, so the second article is a nice review of uh, what's going on in catheter-based ablation. And this was a study of uh, over 26,000 patients consecutively treated with ablation in the country of Sweden from uh, 2006 to 2015. So there were 26,000 plus patients undergoing over 34,000 ablation procedures. WPW was the target in 12%, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia 21%, atrial tach 5%, flutter 16%, atrial fib 35%, AV nodal target 7%, and PVC ablation in 1.7%, and about 2.8% were VT. Follow-up interval uh, median was about five years. When the authors looked at these results over time, a couple of interesting things emerged, and I think these are not surprises to you. First of all, there's been a global increase in AFib ablation as that technique has gotten better. More frequently now, we're being able to attack ventricular tachycardia with ablation strategies when antiarrhythmic drug therapies fail or patients get untoward side effects. And lastly, we've recognized a potential cardiomyopathy caused by frequent PVCs and therefore PVC ablation has emerged as a more important opportunity for patients with that particular syndrome. Interestingly, the rate of repeat ablation in Sweden was highest at 41% in patients getting AFib ablation. And uh, this is probably consistent with kind of the global sense that uh, if you're gonna have AFib ablation, uh, often we say the success rate often requires first one and occasionally two to get to an overall success durability rate of maybe 80, 85%, depending on the center and the type of patient. So clearly the ablation strategy is changing as we take on uh, more difficult patients with AFib, VT, PVC ablation for cardiomyopathy. And interestingly, as they watched length of stay, uh, time under fluoroscopy, et cetera, all of those parameters improved in Sweden, even though the type of patients were getting more and more complicated. I think it's dramatic the effect uh, the ablative strategies have had on managing our patients with all kinds of symptomatic arrhythmias. And this snapshot from uh, Sweden is just a helpful look at how that evolution has gone forward. Isn't it wonderful for places like Sweden to have a national database like this so they can track practice changes over time, which uh, certainly can be influential in how they think about uh, resource use. I wish we had such a nationalized a database in our country, but hopefully in the future. The last article I wanted to talk about today is the area of beta blocker use in pregnancy and the risk of congenital malformations. This was published this week in Annals of Internal Medicine. The database used for this was the U.S. Medicaid database and the registries from five Nordic countries, and they were analyzed looking at uh, women who are pregnant with a diagnosis of hypertension who were exposed to beta blockers during the first trimester. And the outcomes assessed were whether their offspring had any congenital abnormalities, cardiac malformations, cleft lip or palate, or central nervous system malformations. They also tried to look at potential confounders to control for a propensity score adjustment, particularly just hypertension itself, which is known to cause a slightly increased risk of congenital abnormalities in the child. 
This is a large study as these studies go. There were uh, 682 women exposed to beta blockers in the Nordic cohort and about 1,600 uh, women in the uh, U.S. cohort. The uh, pooled adjusted relative risk of beta blockers causing any malformation was essentially one. Similarly, for cardiac malformation, uh, for cleft palate, for CNS abnormalities, none of them reached statistical significance. So this study, which included then over 2,000 women exposed to beta blockers in the first trimester who had hypertension, did not suggest that beta blockers are associated with a significant increase in congenital malformations. Obviously, the number of clinical studies we have looking at the use of various medications in pregnancy is vastly limited. And we've been using beta blockers as first-line therapy for hypertension in pregnancy for some time, based on early studies of older drugs like propranolol suggesting that the drugs are safe. This analysis, which is quite large, is, I think, further reassuring for us in terms of this process that beta blockers appear to be safe. Labetalol is often used in pregnancy, but metoprolol has probably been the most commonly used beta blocker for arrhythmias, cardiomyopathies, and aortopathies. And both types of beta blockers appear to be safe. Not studied in this article was fetal growth and whether beta blockers could potentially blunt fetal growth. Thankfully, we can follow fetal size during the pregnancy and uh, track for that type of concern. So I thought it was a, a useful article and somewhat a reassuring article to us in the area of medical management of patients with hypertension during pregnancy. So three articles today, uh, different topics, uh, one uh, looking at anticoagulation in blacks, Hispanics, and whites, another looking at the evolution of ablation strategies in Sweden, and lastly, an article using several databases looking at the safety of beta blockers in pregnancy in women with hypertension, or you could extrapolate that to also arrhythmias. I want to thank you for taking time to listen to Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org, and you can find this information on our website. Also, there's a new educational catalog featured on acc.org. Look for it under the Education and Meetings tab. Using that tool, you can sort our educational offerings by various formats, and as you know, many of them are free. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you have a great week, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.